Good morning, Tom. This is Gail Cutler speaking to you from Chicago, Illinois. And could you please tell us where you are? Yes, Gail. I live downstate Illinois, really, in a town called Shiloh, which is basically across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. So we're on the same time zone, and I think we share the same weather pattern. Yes. And we share something else, Tom, that we wish we did not. Uh, we share the loss of our children, and we share the desire and the urge to help as many others as we can to avoid um, what our families have uh, gone through and to also help those in desperate need of uh, exactly what your book is about, calling uh, called A Balanced Life, Nine Strategies for Coping with the Mental Health Problems of a Loved One. Uh, Tom, would you please uh, tell our audience what it is that prompted you and your family to write this very important book? Thank you, Gail. Yes, I, I will. Actually, there was a previous book a couple years ago, 2005, called The Tattered Tapestry, and that was subtitled The Family's Search for Peace with Bipolar Disorder. As that book indicates, uh, our, our daughter, Carla, who was a twin with her twin brother, Kevin, developed bipolar disorder when she was a sophomore in college, uh, second semester, sophomore year, went into a very deep depression. And after a couple of years and a couple of bouts of depression and then a very serious manic phase, uh, of her illness. She was, I think, properly diagnosed as bipolar at that point. Uh, during the seven years of her illness where she was depressed and then manic, uh, we struggled as a family with coping with what, what that behavior presented to us. She wound up in, uh, actually for three years, quite stable, went back to college and was a 4.0 student, very active in student activities as well. But in the summer of 2002, she got off of some of her medication and wound up experiencing a very manic, psychotic phase, which for her lasted like four or five months. Uh, when she came off of that finally, uh, back on medication and and with the help of a counselor in, in, our, in the family, she went into a deep depression. That was November, December of 2002. And on New Year's Eve 2002, she was in practically a catatonic stage. Uh, she was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where we had lived for many years. And my wife, Fran, was, was with her at that time uh, and discovered her in this catatonic stage and uh, got her into a behavioral health care unit in Tulsa who treated her for 10 days and then, against our wishes, uh, released her on a Friday afternoon without any plan for the weekend. Uh, a very aggressive aftercare program was to begin on Monday, January 13th at 3 o'clock. But at 1 o'clock, she was at a friend's apartment and found a hidden 22 caliber Rifle. Uh, the friend was out for a little while, and she managed to uh, shoot herself through the heart, through her aorta, severed her aorta, and she died instantly at age 26. Uh, we grieved her loss and still do uh, profoundly as our life moves on. In some ways, there continues to be that big hole in our family uh, without Carla. 
His name is Carla with a K, by the way. Uh, That's a beautiful name. Yes, and and what we did as a result of, of that is I, I wrote the, the, the first book, The Tattered Tapestry, within about six, eight months of her death because I wanted to capture the story and the, kind of the raw emotion of, of the aftermath of that. And that's that's in, in that book. Um, we also formed the Carla Smith Foundation, which is Carla, again, with a K, carlasmithfoundation.org, uh, which is our website. We formed the foundation to provide what we call Hope for a Balanced Life uh, for family and friends of anyone with mental health problems or who lost a loved one to suicide. And part of that mission, we accomplished part of that mission through support groups. Uh, we have one support group for the family and friends of anyone with a mental illness. We have a second separate support group for anyone who lost a loved one to suicide. And in our, particularly in our support group for the family and friends of anyone with mental health problems, and based upon our own ex- personal experience, we identified nine, the nine strategies that we think will be helpful to people who are living with someone with a mental illness. We did not have the benefit of these strategies when we were going through it. We didn't even know, frankly, that DBSA existed or any other organizations existed. We we were really on our own and kind of struggled with what, what do you do about this. Uh, we could get some information about bipolar disorder online, and we did do that. We researched that, but... How do you apply that information to living situations? That that was a difficult transition, and we uh, we we knew that 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 there's a need for that. So absolutely a need, and and Tom, I can echo your your sentiments um, word for word. Actually, as we were living the journey with our Rebecca, uh, we too did not know where to turn. There was limited, if any, information for the families, and uh, certainly limited information uh, for Rebecca. I would uh, love for our listening audience to hear uh, from you the nine strategies that you have written about so beautifully in in your book. Uh, Would you mind doing that? And then uh, after hearing the nine strategies, um, I'm going to ask you uh, to uh, flesh out uh, a few of them uh, after we hear the, the nine. Sure. Thank you, Gail. I'll be, be happy to. Uh, these nine strategies are not necessarily in the order that I'm going to present them. Uh, we believe that all nine of them taken together gives family and friends uh, the best opportunity to achieve what we call a balanced life because we think if you're living with someone with a mental illness, your life is out of balance. And, and the goal is to try to get some balance back into that life, and we think the combination of all these nine would uh, are your best shot at, at, at achieving that sense of balance. The number one, or the first strategy is help our loved one find and continue to take the medication needed for a balanced life. Number two, urge our loved one to maintain a supportive relationship with a therapist, counselor, or sponsor. Number three, learn as much as we can about the mental disorder of our loved one. Number four, Assist our loved one in developing a healthy self-esteem since it is critical for a balanced emotional life. Number five, accept mental disorder as a fact of life for our loved one, even though this mental disorder does not encompass all of life. Number six, take care of ourselves by proper exercise, sleep, diet, relationships, and by monitoring our feelings. 
Number seven, become a supportive network of family and or friends who know about the mental disorder and who commit to acting in the best interest of our loved one as far as we are able. Number eight, identify the early warning signs that precede a more difficult phase of the mental disorder and help our loved one when these signs emerge. And number nine, acknowledge our dependence on a higher power and seek guidance from that higher power in whatever way that is comfortable to us. I would just want to add to the nine that if in a particular situation uh, a family identifies another strategy that works and is needed in their situation, to please adopt that as a strategy also. But I, I would caution that trying to pick and choose among the nine and saying, I'm just going to do one or two of them, probably will not be as effective. What we believe is that all nine of these uh, used in concert provide us the best path to some sense of peace. Absolutely. I, I would reiterate that wholeheartedly. Uh, in your preface, Tom, you write, uh, living with these strategies, uh, those that you just outlined for us, will bring balance, hope, and peace in troubled times. We use the, the word hope a great deal in our work uh, through Rebecca's Foundation uh, and uh, Rebecca's Dream. You have written about hope in your beautiful book, and I would like uh, to know if, if you would please speak to the issue of hope, what you really mean by that, hope. I, I, I would mention hope in two categories. Uh, one is hope for the person with the mental disorder. Uh, there, there is hope. Hope means that a future can be better than what it is right now, that uh, sometime down the road, uh, even someone who is in very serious uh, disarray emotionally because of their mental disorder, even, the, even those people can find some, some hope uh, if they follow some of these strategies. Uh, take the medication, find the right medication, get a good doctor, have a counselor, that all of those kinds of uh, efforts on the part of the person with the mental health problems uh, can can provide some hope for them. There are many people with bipolar disorder and with other mental illnesses who lead very productive, happy lives uh, in our society. Usually people get in trouble with their mental illness when they do not follow some medication prescription or don't see a counselor on a regular basis uh, and do not have a supportive family and friends. So the, the hope for, for the person with the mental health problems is that there is, there is the possibility of a, of a brighter future. Uh, for the family and friends, which is the primary focus of, of our book, there's also hope. And that hope stems from not just and not just dependent on whether their, their loved one with uh, mental health problems uh, gets better, uh, but it, they, they also have the hope that they can manage their own lives, uh, the emotional chaos that is present in their lives, they can manage that, that, that emotional life uh, better. Uh, the nine strategies are a path to, to that kind of, of hope. So there, there are possibilities of, of uh, things getting better. And in the book, uh, there are testimonies of people in our, basically from our own life and then also from the people who are in our support group who have testified and given examples of how a particular strategy had led them to uh, a, a sense of, of hope and balance. 
Absolutely. And again, I want to reiterate that all nine strategies are equally important, as you said, Tom. If we just pick and choose, we're not going to reach the goal uh, that we're looking for. Uh, however, uh, due to our time restraints, I, I am going to um, ask you about uh, another uh, chapter that strikes me as, as being uh, absolutely crucial, and that is Chapter 6 on self-care. And what you have written is the strategy, take care of yourselves by proper exercise, sleep, diet, relationships, and by monitoring our feelings. Uh, all of the above is crucial, and Tom, would you spend a little bit of time talking about our feelings, the feelings of those living with our loved ones, um, going through the, 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 the dreadful ups and downs that, that they go through? What about our feelings? Yeah, our feelings as family members and friends uh, are, are very, very, can be very, very chaotic uh, there. I know we experience, I experience some real frustration, anger at times at, at her behavior, not understanding that it was due to her illness and not her personal responsibility. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount of frustration. The other, the other thing that happens, I, I think, is that we learn how to communicate with one another in what we might call normal circumstances. And uh, the ways in which we communicate under normal circumstances with other people, uh, we're familiar with how that works. And when we say something, another person says something, and we, we learn how to communicate. But when you're dealing with someone with a mental disorder, those normal means of communication just don't work. Uh, you don't get the kind of response that you would normally get from someone. You get very, sometimes very bizarre responses. So that leads to a constant exposure to frustration. Uh, it, it requires a lot of special attention to deal with someone with a mental illness. And that can be very time consuming. It can be intellectually challenging and, and just frankly, emotionally draining. Just You, you get drained uh, emotionally, physically, intellectually. Uh, you don't know where to turn. You don't know what to do next. Everything is out of proportion. Uh, so in that environment, it, it's vital for people to uh, do what this strategy says. Uh, you know, we get a lot of a lot of advice to do proper exercise, sleep, diet, and all of that comes from a lot of, and that's true for everybody. But right. when you're dealing with someone with a mental illness, with the emotional drain that I just tried to describe, those kinds of uh, it, that kind of advice for exercise, sleep, diet, it becomes even more critical because uh, it it can just take it out of you. And then in terms of relationships, what often happens is that uh, our relationships are so focused on the person with the mental illness that we drop other relationships and we shortchange perhaps other kids in the family, uh, other needs that that uh, require us. Uh, we we shortchange them a lot of times just to try to keep up with uh, the person who is with the mental illness. And I, I added that phrase about monitoring our feelings uh, because one of the things that, that happens is that we we have some negative feelings towards uh, our, our loved one, but we don't want to express any of that for fear of, of reaction that we're not anticipating. So we wind up even denying and, and uh, suppressing 
some of the negative feelings that we have. Uh, and I, I suggest here that we have to monitor those feelings. We have to be on top of them. We have to know what we are really feeling and express those to someone, both the positive uh, feelings and the negative ones. Uh, it takes much more attention to our own self-care when we're dealing with someone with uh, a mental illness than it does uh, if, if you don't have that situation. So, so Tom, are you suggesting that uh, those living, you know, the f- uh, family, siblings, parents, anyone uh, living with uh, someone who is going through the mental health issue, that uh, we, too, seek out our own support system, uh, actually um, group work like you're doing and also our own therapy? Absolutely. Uh, I, I just... It was our experience, and and many other people who are in similar situations experience uh, also that it just gets overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And that sense of being overwhelmed, uh, a good way through that or trying to work with that is to get support from other people. People will testify in our support group all the time that they really didn't know anyone else was feeling this way, Mm -hmm. that their feelings were or so isolated, and because of the stigma attached to mental illness, they, they're reluctant to talk to anyone about it. So going to a support group with other people who uh, are experiencing similar things can be a tremendous relief in itself. And then in that setting, they also uh, positive things emerge from that, suggestions, strategies, how different people cope with, with situations, what how they think about situations. Uh, becomes uh, much becomes very supportive for for everyone there. Uh, the Actually, that that is such a benefit for family members because we too feel isolated and we too feel alone. And I have to say, very honestly, that I felt and continue to feel a con- uh, a huge sense of rage and anger toward those outside of the mental health community who just don't get it. Looking at our children, I, I can imagine that your Carla was every bit as magnificent and beautiful and talented and creative as my Rebecca, and who would believe that yeah. anything was wrong? And the all of the negative responses that, that we heard, that we were spoiling her, that we should tough love, you've heard it, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, and And being with others who truly appreciate and understand makes such a difference. Uh, for us as well. In in your book, at, at the end of each chapter, Tom, you have uh, done something quite wonderful. You have questions for group discussion or personal reflection. Did these uh, group discussion and personal reflection statements come out of your group work? Yeah, most of it was based upon our experience in the group. Uh, after writing the strategy and you know, thinking about it and knowing that how I would hope the book would be used would be in support groups and and personally as well that uh, we we tested those questions in our support group uh, and got various answers and reworded some of them and dropped some and added some others based upon that it was kind of like the our group here was like a field test for for some of those and the purpose of of those questions. Uh, both in the group setting and for personal reflection, is to try to ask the reader to take the the, inf- the information that's there and and uh, 
apply it to their own situation. Uh, so the, the key is is to uh, see how each chapter fits, you know, each individual uh, circumstance, and that that's the intention of them. And um, like they are kind of tried questions. They're they're just made up. They're they're, they're based upon the experience. Of mm-hmm. With a lot of a lot of input. Uh, I'm, I want to uh, go back to something we had been talking about before. Um, how do you suggest avoiding resentment, uh, the neglect and tension with others in your family, in your social network? I'm, I'm particularly thinking of Kevin. He's a twin, and so much attention was focused on Carla. And then there's Kevin. What can you say to our listening audience about siblings? Uh, Kevin gives uh, wonderful testimony to the relationship of siblings uh, and and how difficult it was uh, and the grief related to uh, her suicide. Uh, What he did uh, in the first book I mentioned, The Tattered Tapestry, he kept a log, a daily log of uh, Carla's manic episode, The Fall Before She Died. And if anyone wants to see how a sibling can attempt to relate to and support uh, his, his sister. Uh, just read, he's got a couple chapters in, in that book uh, that, that really are those, is that log. Uh, so he's very, very uh, close to her. Um, he has since been married and has uh, our first grandson. Oh, congratulations. And, yes, and he just said, the other day uh, at, a, at a support group meeting, he mentioned this, that his wife asked him uh, what he wanted for Christmas, and the first thing that came out was, I want my sister back so I could introduce her to my son. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, so those kinds of things are still very, very, and it's, it's five and a half years since Carla has died, but that's the way she is still, you know, a part of our life and how much we miss her. But but in terms of your question on resentment, uh, the comment that I'd make is that the first thing with about resentment and, and any kind of feeling really is admit it first. Admit right. the resentment. Uh, and uh, once we admit that we, we are feeling that, then uh, list the reasons for that resentment. Uh, what's behind it? Uh, try to identify the reasons behind the feeling. Because all of our feelings actually come from I, I believe, come from a way in which we think. So if we can identify our thinking, what leads to the feelings, that helps expose it and put it out there for us. Then uh, I guess the, the next step would be to like claim that resentment, uh, own it. It, it, isn't, it isn't like a resentment or an anger that is someone else is doing this to me. I, I own my own feelings. Uh, my feelings are mine, and claiming those feelings, claiming that resentment, claiming that that anger, is is a necessary stage to letting go of it. And then finally, I think that it's more possible to let go of the resentment, let go of the anger, uh, once we are able to, once we have admitted it, uh, listed the reasons, claimed it, then we're at a point to say. I don't really need these negative feelings. Uh, I can let go of them. Uh, 
and at least for me, uh, a key to that whole process, which can often take a long, long time, yeah. but uh, but the the key to it is is that thing I mentioned about owning it. Uh, my feelings are mine. Uh, circumstances, other people, other situations don't make me feel any in any particular way. It isn't that I choose the feelings, uh, but I but I own them. And once I admit that, then it's better to it's it's a little easier I think to say I don't need to to feel that way or think that way uh, any longer. It's a hard process, and it usually takes, as as you suggested, Gail, it, it usually takes uh, either group work or private counseling as well. And I do recommend both group work for the family and friends and private counseling for the family and friends of anyone with a mental mental health problems. Yes, it's absolutely crucial. It's a very long, lonely road. Uh, yes. Walking, and one cannot do it alone. That's right. Uh, I, speaking of, of your group work, can you uh, please give us an idea of how you use the book, <clears throat> excuse me, how you do use the book in a group setting? Do you take it chapter by chapter, um, week after week? How, how do you lead uh, or do you lead a group uh, using your book? Yeah, the the format of our groups is we we start them off with a with a reading, a short reading, kind of introducing people to the group and what we're trying to accomplish there. We often have new people. Like last Thursday night, for example, we had our our support group. We had 18 people and two new people. So we do an introductory thing that just takes about a minute or so. Then what we'll do is we'll read the nine strategies, just as I did earlier. We'll just pass the paper around and everybody will read one without comment, just, just to have people become aware of what we're, what we're focusing on here. Then what we'll do is we'll do a, a check-in so that everyone gets an opportunity to say where they are and what's happened uh, since the last since the last meeting or what's going on in their life right now. And as we go around the table and people report on their current situation, then everyone in the group can respond to that. Uh, it, it becomes, sometimes it becomes, if they hit on something that is very common to a lot of people, it will be a kind of a lengthy sharing going on at that point. What we and, we, and that usually takes, we meet for an hour and a half, and that, that will normally take an hour or so. Uh, just to have people kind of share where they are and to get get help from anybody around the table. But we will end up the the session with the last 10 minutes or so with a focus on one of the strategies. Uh, for example, this month, um, we and we, we're taking it by the month. So this month we were on strategy number two, which is, on, is the one about uh, therapist, counselor, or sponsor. And people will have read... Uh, most of them, I think, generally read the chapter beforehand. It, this is not a study group, or an, it, you know, it's not an education thing like that. But we will, what we'll do then is go to the questions that you pointed out at, at the end of the chapter. Uh, at, at one point, it, you know, we'll we'll just kind of quickly summarize the theme of that chapter, and then uh, go into those questions. And generally, the questions bring people back to the content of the chapter, as well as add. Uh, people can add their own uh, various responses and, and, and add to those various questions. But the questions become kind of the anchor of that education part of our of our session. We we did not want our support group to be an experience of people 
frankly, just, you know, kind of complaining about how bad it is. Right. Uh, and we all know how bad it is, but we, we wanted it to be more positive than that. We have to acknowledge the negative experiences, but at the same time, we wanted to have it be educational and helpful so that uh, people can see a path to the hope that we had talked about earlier. And what I, I would call our group now, I call it a mature group in the sense that there are people uh, who come uh, each session who have been coming for a couple of years and they have worked through a lot of different issues and and uh and so they can share from their experience and we also have regularly new people so it it's a good group in that there's a a mixture of new people who are just like we had a couple just come in last uh two two meetings ago who's just their daughter was just diagnosed bipolar and you know they're they're just in the beginning of what is this all about? And yeah. it's very helpful to have people who have lived through some of that share their experience. That's where the hope comes from. Absolutely. Are you and Fran the the leaders, or how do you? We yeah. Do initially, Fran and I, Fran and I, kind of alternated being the facilitator of it. But at this point, we have other people in the group who uh, who also do that facilitating. People who have been with the group for some time and are familiar with the strategies and are some of the more I would call veteran members of the group, uh, they volunteer, and we ask people to volunteer to, to lead the group. Mm-hmm. So they take their turns uh, at doing that. Uh, do I have your permission, uh, and you can say no, but do I have your permission to uh, give your phone number on this podcast for those who would like to start a group using your book? Uh, would you be willing to help people begin and if they need uh, some of your expertise, are, are you willing to, and do you have the time, actually, to help people through this process? And again, you can say no. Oh, no, no, no. I, I say an emphatic yes, because uh, that is precisely one of the uh, one of the parts of our mission is that we, we uh, intend to do that. In fact, there is a group in southern Illinois, further south in Marion, Illinois, who is, uh, we, w- we would do more than just talk to them about, the approach in that uh, I have a little facilitator booklet uh, that we use for training uh, for people. We, Wonderful. We would go to people. Uh, if people in Chicago, they, we, we can get there quite easily. We would be glad to even come and, and visit and have a training session with them and talk about not only the, not only the format of the meeting and some suggestions on kind of group dynamics, but also, uh, how do you market this? Uh, right. How do you let people know that you're that we're, you know, that you actually exist? Uh, and so, yes, the phone. Oh, one other thing along those lines: we just completed a uh, a DVD, uh, Carla Smith Foundation DVD, which uh, outlines about it runs 14 minutes, which tells our story and invites people to join us in our mission. And we would be more than happy to. Uh, to give our, let me give you not only uh, let me give you our foundation phone number and our home phone number. Uh, okay, very good. And would you mind repeating it twice? Sure. Um, the uh, foundation phone number is one eight 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 KSF Hope H O P E. So it's eight 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 KSF Hope, and our our home number is 618-628-3129, 
at 618-628-3129. And actually, I would I would suggest that people would call the home number. Uh, that's we'll answer that at any point. You know. That's wonderful. And, and also, while I'm, I'm doing that, you can also get a lot of information about us and our services and that at our website, which is um, Carla Smith Foundation, Carla with a K, carlasmithfoundation.org. Carla Smith Foundation with a K. Dot with a K. Org. Dot org, yeah. Wonderful. You're doing incredible, incredible work. And you know there isn't enough there there just isn't enough no. that we can all do. It's overwhelming, actually. That's right. Absolutely. I, I uh, have a, a question that might be very unfair, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, do you have a favorite section in, in your book, uh, A Balanced Life? Was there one or perhaps two uh, sections or chapters in particular that you and your family found most helpful to write? Yeah. Let me, let me mention two of them, Gail. Uh, and, and number one is is the first one. Help our loved one find and continue to take the medication needed for a balanced life. Uh, it is really pivotal that people get the proper medication. And as you may or may not know, it's not always easy to find that. Uh, um, I do know. <laughs> okay, the, the combination of getting a medication that works and stays effective is, is so pivotal in this whole... Uh, experience of someone with a mental illness that uh, the family and friends role in that is that they they need to know what the medication is uh, the effects it has the side effects the doctor who prescribes it access to that doctor particularly if for some reason the medication is no longer effective the person quits taking the meds which happens all too frequently uh, or the side effects become unmanageable then it's the family and friends who often need to intervene and, and guide the person back to the medication needed. Uh, so I, I want to emphasize the medication piece to it. In our support group, uh, that topic comes up over and over again. Uh, what's tied in with that is finding a doctor who yes. prescribes and uh, you know uh, who's who's really is interested in in the in the, in the person. Um, we hear a lot of times that that. Psychiatrists and doctors who prescribe meds just spend a few minutes with with the the patient and just gives them their meds and off they go. Right. Uh, which is why they need they also need a counselor. But but that is that'd be the, the one thing I'd want to comment on. The other one I want to want to comment on, and I, I want to do this because it's not too prevalent and we're trying to promote it. And that is strategy number seven: become a supportive network of family and friends who know about the mental disorder and who commit to acting in the best interest of our loved one as far as we are able. Uh, as we said earlier, the, the family can just become drained physically, emotionally, uh, spiritually, drained uh, in dealing with someone with a mental disorder. Uh, what we propose in this strategy is to expanding the network of people who know about and are closely related to the person with the mental illness so that they can become almost family, uh, expand the family uh, network to include other people who are, who are, are supportive. Uh, I think that's so important because that can take some of the pressure off of the family uh, in, in uh, relating to the person with the 
you know, with the mental illness. So uh, that's really important. And expanding that network, it's so hard for people to do that uh, because the stigma is there. Uh, if, like, my, my wife, for example, had cancer last year, she's fortunately recovering from that. But, but, but when people found out that she had cancer, and we were not reluctant to, to let people know that, there was all kinds of support. You know, right. people just were very emotionally supportive. But if you share with someone your daughter has bipolar disorder, they're not going to be there to support as much. That's right. A lot of times they shy away. You know, That's it's right. kind of like I don't, I don't know what to do with that. You know, and so, so it's much harder to to get a supportive network uh, of people. But uh, what we promote in that seventh strategy is some techniques to invite people in. To that inner circle of support, and uh, that we think is is a very critical step in coping with uh, the mental illness of a loved one. Absolutely, and I think what we have to remember also, Tom, is that there were years when we never said the word cancer. You know, the big C; it was always a secret, and there was such a stigma attached to that. And look how far we've come, and in regard to this that horrible disease. And my hope, and yours as well, I know, is that there will come a day when we can talk about mental illness with the same compassion, with the same understanding, and with the same hopefulness. Oh, absolutely. I use that example a lot, Gail. I would like to take it one step further, a little more specific even, that I'd love to see a day when, uh, you know, the Susan Coleman race for the cure, which is very... No, I mean, raise a lot of money for one thing for research, but it also is an awareness event. I'd sure like to see a similar kind of event, uh, annual event for mental illness. Well, we're we're going to work on that because that's where we want to go too. <laughs> yeah, I do too, and and I I I think to make that happen, uh, groups like you know Rebecca's Dream, DBSA, ourselves, and other foundations and, and groups around the the country. Uh, and NAMI too. I'd like to get NAMI involved. Yes. We, need, we yes. need one voice. We need, yes, we need one, one united voice on this to 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 make that kind of impact on our society happen. I think at this point there's a lot of us who are doing kind of individual things, and uh, I think we're making a little impact in in our little area here. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, and I'm sure you are are there too. Yes, but, yeah. Uh, but we, it's we, not enough. Not enough. There's a group in Milwaukee. There's a group uh, out in Montana. There's, you know, mm-hmm. there are, there are some uh, around the country. There are there are smaller groups making an effort, uh, but we need we need a spark to pull that all together and have a, a truly national campaign. Uh, for well, in reading about you uh, at the end of your book, page 147, about the author, it says you adopted the motto in 1966. Quote bash on regardless, unquote. I believe, Tom, that as long as you continue to bash on, we continue to bash on, the DBSA and all of the other groups in the country continue to bash on, we are going to fulfill the hope and the dream that you and I have been expressing during these past few minutes. I want to thank you tremendously for taking your time uh, to speak to us for the Rebecca's Dream Family Center podcast and for DBSA. Your work is exceptional. Carla was exceptional. Your family is exceptional. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for speaking with me today. 
is there something you would like to say uh, to wrap us up? Well, just, just to thank you, Gail, for the opportunity of sharing our story and to take another step in getting our our um, collaborative mission uh, out there a little little better. So I want to thank you, DBSA, for all the work that, that you and they do for the sake of the people with mental illness and in our particular experience for the family and friends. Uh, the, I think there, there needs to be, I, I would like to see an, an even stronger emphasis on the needs and uh, that of family and friends of someone with mental illness, whether we'd have our own separate organization or, or whatever. But uh, we, we are, the people who are like us have experiences that, that need uh, attention. And, and uh, the most, we, whatever we can do to highlight that and to help make that happen, I think would be uh, a service to, uh, to our society, actually. Absolutely. And we will stay in touch and we will make it happen. We will bash on together. You bet. Let's do it. <laughs> Take care and thank you very much, Tom. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure talking to you. And you too. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.